We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to A Taste of Romamu, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Romamu, please visit romumu.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. It's possible that maybe you weren't here when, when young Frankenstein came on the screen. For those of you who were great, for those of you who weren't, you have no idea what I'm talking about right now. But we began a journey a week ago, 10 days, a 10-day journey into the heart of truth. And we began with a legend about a golem, a, a mythic creature that was created by a certain rabbi named Yehuda Lau in Prague that academics argue might be the underpinnings of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein certain features and similarities, but one thing that they had in common was that they were stories about human beings creating monsters that get out of control. Human beings and their own hands and their own agency creating a monster. And in the riff from Young Frankenstein, for those of you who remember Gene Wilder, who of course doesn't want to be known as Frankenstein, but rather Frankenstein. asserts that love can transform this creature. Love can heal this creature. Love at all costs. And we, we went through together simple moments of what is now known as mindfulness or meditation, simple moments of what it is using that frame to enter the room with the monster. Gene Wilder's character, of course, is courageous enough to even enter the room, which is a big deal. We call that simply noticing the truth. There's a monster there. And then we spoke more deeply, and I hope that people remember this during the week, about what it is to stay in the room with that. Because as soon as Gene Wilder's character gets into the room, people remember, like, so I, no matter what, I'm not leaving. They're leaving. Please let me out. So we talked about that, about what it is that transformation happens in the moment that I am imprisoning myself, not in the moment before I enter the room, but the moment in which I am imprisoning myself, that I have enough awareness to notice how I am imprisoning myself. That is staying in the room. And then we spoke um, about what that might yield if we can stay long enough in the room and breathe and feel the feeling and be with it, as my friend Peter Bregman, I quote him again, if we can feel anything, we can heal. He says everything, many things. So I want to tell you a story about staying in the room. I'll tell you a story that in a period of my life that I've spoken about in, in a number of sermons in the past, I've spoken freely and I 
those who have ever listened to, what, to me speak, I speak about a period of my life when I was deeply depressed. A period of my life where my horizon of hope was, was very far away. A season of my life that felt interminable and felt like it might be my last. And it was in that season of my life that I reached out and I went on a journey that took me to California, Pasadena, where I spent a month in an inpatient facility where I learned about gestalt therapy and I learned about the ways that we suffer, the ways that the mind and the heart and the things that are planted in us come to fruition. I learned about the power of community, the power of radical truth-telling. It was a hospital that was intended for addicts of various kinds, and I didn't fit into a substance abuse context. I was, for those who might know this, those who don't, I was a religion addict. <laughs> I had woken up at the age of 23 years old and realized that I had become addicted to a system that was unhealthy, a system that was although it had seeds of love and seeds of power, I had become something that I could never have imagined. And so I had taken myself to this space. And one of the most remarkable things about it was that it also introduced me to the wonderful, wonderful therapeutic and transformative work of 12 Steps. What some academics and others have argued is maybe the most powerful religion of the 20th century in America, secular, although it has a higher power. And it was there in Pasadena in 1992, February, that I sat in on my first ever 12-step meeting. And as it is the case in the, in the movement or in, in that world, there could be 10 people, 20, 100, 300, didn't matter what the meeting, there were no preset numbers. Now, as they went around the room, they would pass around an affirmation sheet that had been laminated. It had about 40 affirmations saying wonderful things that we should hopefully interject and say to ourselves. And all of these random individuals that were in the room would pass around the laminated sheet in no order. We went every week to this meeting space, Thursday nights. And for the four Thursdays that I was in Pasadena, California, the four meetings that I went to, as they passed around the laminated card with affirmations randomly assigned to anyone in the room, on a day where there were 20 one week and 100 the next week, and the third week there were 50, and the, sec and the fourth week there were 300, each week I received the same affirmation. <laughs> you know what it said? You are a child of God. I'd like to tell you the end of the story, but happy endings depend upon where you end the story, said Oscar Wells. Orson Wells. Orson Wells. Happy endings depend upon where we end the story, and where we end the story is significant. Because we are, all of us, in a story 
at this moment in our lives, in the moment of history here in this community, here in this city, in this country. There's a story that's happening. And it's a story that begins first and foremost with a sense that many of us have, maybe you have it, I certainly feel it deeply, the sense of a bit of despondency maybe, a weariness, a tiredness, a despair, a sense of overwhelm, a sense of absolutely contingent fear, what might become, what is dying, what is alive, what is real, what is not real. It is here, it is in the ethos, it's in all of us. We, each and every one of us, to some degree or another, I don't know, I won't speak for you, might be coming here tonight with a sense of that. The sense of what's going to happen. We might be, in some sense or another, wondering where the story will end and how it will end. So I want to look with you at this moment at a midrash, a rabbinic story about truth, a rabbinic folktale that begins that Rabbi Shimon said when God was about to create Adam, the first human, the ministering angels split into contending groups. Some said, let him be created, while others cried, let him not be created. That is why it is written... Mercy and truth have collided, righteousness and peace engaged in a clash. Different groups of angels. There was an angel group called Mercy said, let man, let humans be created for they will do merciful deeds. Then truth came along and said, let them not be created for they will be false. Righteousness said, let him be created for he will do righteous deeds, but peace would have none of it. Peace said, let him not be created, for he will never cease quarreling. And so what did God do? The Holy One, blessed be he, took truth and cast it into the ground. Truth has been cast into the ground, say the rabbis, by God. The great rabbi, Abraham Joshua Heschel, has a take on this parable. He says, this parable openly declares... Once and for all, that man's very existence is founded upon the tomb in which truth is imprisoned. Man prevails only because truth lies buried, where truth lies buried. Truth lies buried, stifled in the grave, yet it remains alive. Truth wants to emerge, but man does not permit its appearance. Human structures stand like a mausoleum on the grave of truth, preventing it from raising its head. In this parable, we have an image of truth being thrown to the ground. And maybe you'll go home tonight and you'll think about what it would be like for God to hide truth in the ground. But fundamentally, Rav Heschel says that truth lies in the ground like a corpse in a tomb. We build mausoleums over it. We walk by, we visit it now and then. But truth gets buried in the ground. To paraphrase Jack Nicholson, whose clip I will not show, we can't handle the truth. Because we, say the angels, are malesh karim. We are full of lies. We are 
deceitful. We are creatures of great mendacity. We know what it is to be afraid of the truth, and so we hide it. We deeply, deeply dig a grave, and we bury it deep. In the program, they say that denial is the acronym, don't even know that I am lying. We become so used to the narratives that we spin individually. We become so used to the truths that we keep locked away or the truth that someone else told us that we shouldn't tell. We dig graves for truth. Truth lies buried in the ground. In the darkness of fear, of existential terror, of ignorance, of prejudice, of wanton, wishful thinking, truth dies in the ground. Truth can die in the ground so deeply that you can be sitting five inches away from the rabbi giving a sermon and be on your phone. So irrelevant is it to hear about truth. So irrelevant is it to hear about a country that is aflame and ablaze with lies and deceits that what's happening later is more important. Who knows? We lose our appetite for truth when we lose sight that it's even possible to find it. In the darkness of the graves that we bury truth in, their truth lies waiting for those courageous souls who might go to find that truth. We bury truth when we refuse to acknowledge, to admit that those self-evident truths upon which this country was founded, that all men are created equal, really meant only white men. The truth is buried when we aren't willing to face and contend with these inconvenient truths, these sins of commission and omission. As my friend, the great Rabbi Sharon Brous wrote, in all the talk of the grandeur of America and its exceptionalism, we often fail to acknowledge that America was not built for many of the people who now call it home. It wasn't built for black and brown people, for Muslims, Latinos, for Asians, or frankly, for Jews. It wasn't built for LGBTQ folks, for feminists, for radical African Americans and Buddhists or women rabbis, it wasn't built for so many of us who are in this room and outside. We bury the truth each time we sing this land is your land, this land is my land. It's simply not true. And those buried truths don't go away, they fester, they seep. Whether they are ignored or denied, the trauma doesn't go away just because we pretend it's not there. Individually, collectively, this country is going through a regression for the sake of its ego, the likes of which we have not seen ever before. And yet there are people who go looking for buried truth. People like Brian Stevenson, the founder and the executive director of Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama, an organization that is dedicated to reforming the criminal justice system. In his TED Talk, Brian Stevenson 
says this remarkable thing. He says, the democratic geography, the, democ- the demographic geography of this country was shaped by terrorism. That black people who moved to Cleveland and Chicago and Detroit and Los Angeles and Oakland and New York and Boston didn't go there as immigrants looking for new economic opportunities. They went to those communities as exiles and refugees from terrorism. And they are burdened by that history. The truth is buried. There are incredible people like Tarana, Tanara Burke, the often forgotten founder of the Me Too movement. She's someone who digs truth out from the ground. She started the Me Too movement with workshops in high schools for girls in Tuskegee, Alabama. She asked the girls to fill in a worksheet noting three things they hadn't known before they came, adding to them that if they needed help, they should just write me too on the paper. She says, doing it that way, it wasn't like raise your hand if you want a me too sheet, she says. We weren't asking people to out themselves. At the end of the event, she and her colleague collected the sheets. She says, I'll never forget, There were 30 or so girls in the room, and we expected five or six of them to write Me Too, and there were 20. The truth gets buried in the ground. Burke has dedicated her life to making it safe to tell those truths for the sake of women's agency, for the sake of healing and empowerment, for the sake of the truth. Stevenson wrote, We cannot... We cannot recover until we commit ourselves to a process of truth and reconciliation. We cannot recover until we commit ourselves to a process of truth and reconciliation. My friend Valerie Kaur is um, a Sikh activist and a lawyer. At a 2016 interfaith service, that was called after a series of hate crimes in the United States, including earlier in the week when a 39-year-old Sikh man had been shot in his driveway in Kent, Washington by a man wearing a mask. The man said, go back to your own country, and pulled the trigger. At that event, Valerie invited this image that I want to bring now into a second reading of the Midrash. She writes, as a mother... The mother in me asks, what if, what if the darkness of the tomb was not the darkness of the tomb, but the darkness of the womb? What if the darkness of the buried truth, the soil of racism, the soil of misogyny, the soil of patriarchy, the soil of truths that we claimed were self-evident that were a contradiction in the way that we lived, what if that very tomb, that buried truth, was also a gestation chamber, a womb? What if the America that we want to see is not behind us but before us? What if the America that we long for is yet to be born? Unless you think that this is political, We can't heal what we can't feel. 
What's true for the polity is true for me and you. What's true for the polity is true for me and you. When we bury the truth, we live a lie. When we bury the truth, we seep secrets. When we have the courage to face the truth, we transform a tomb to a womb. The very places that were rotting, the very places that were full of pain can become alchemically gold. The very leaden heart can become that soft, loving place. The image of the seed is so powerful because the seed, the seed has in it an intelligence. The seed has in it a purpose. The seed has in it a promise. And the promise of the seed of this country was that all humans were created equal, endowed by their creator with inalienable rights. That is the seed of this country yet to fully bloom. And each and every one of us, each and every one of you has a seed. Each and every one of you here has a purpose has a reason, has a raison d'etre, has a deployment, has something in you that must come out for the world to be what it must become. The great Rav Soloveitchik, the modern Orthodox rabbi, quoted the psalm in Psalm 24 that says, who has not lied. He said, who will, who, says the psalmist, will rise to God's mountain? The one who has clean lips, the one who has clean hands, the one who has not sworn an oath. Rav Soloveitchik says, what does that mean, the one who hasn't sworn an oath? What oath? That's all you have to do is not take bad oaths and you get into God's garden, God's mountain? And Rav Soloveitchik answers, the deepest oath that we take is 30 days before the birth of a child. The Talmud says, there's a voice that heralds in heaven and says, this one, Mark will be this, and John will be that, and Rebecca will be this, and Ariel will be that. 30 days before, there's a seed planted. A child is born with that intelligence, and that is the oath. To be what it was supposed to be, to be true to be true. That great oath was the source also of the oath against which Martin Luther King Jr. said that we are owed a promissory note. There is a debt that this country owes and we'll come to claim it. The violation of who we were meant to be. So how do we build the soil? How do we build a soil in which to plant the seeds that bloom into truth trees? I know, I just thought of that. Truth trees. <laughs> well, the tradition tells us we need two things. The first thing that we need, everyone, is love. When there is love, there is space. In the words of Brian Stevenson, when there is love, we can resurrect the truth. We can resurrect the truth. 
chesed ve'emet, when there's loving kindness, when there is compassion, when there is receptivity, there is the possibility of resurrecting the truth, tuming to wooming. And the second piece that the tradition says is emet ve'emunah, truth and faith. Truth and faith. The word emunah, faith, is an amazing word. It means to have a holding, to be trustworthy, to be someone who stays the distance, who lasts long enough to hold the gestation of something. Emunah means I'm with you till the end. Emunah from the word in Hebrew, aim, mother. The faith to see through seeds fullest expression. Emunah, amun, trustworthy, aim to resurrect the corpse of truth, to transform the tomb and the dark place of denial. We need faith and love. I had a chance this past weekend to participate in a ritual that had both of those, both faith and love, both goodness and seeing things through, the ability to resurrect a dream and resurrect something that might have died. A friend who's basically a dear friend of mine who had two children and after her second child was born, she was told that her body could no longer, wasn't safe for her to carry a child again in her body. But my friend knew that she went more in her, as it were. She wanted another child. She wanted another child. And though she was told by the doctors that she was not safe for her to carry a baby, she wanted one so badly she was even willing and thought moments that she might put herself in danger, in grave danger, to carry a seed. She was persuaded, she was dissuaded by her, her loving husband. And so they started imagining other ways that they might actually fulfill this yearning, this dream, this want. And they found an amazing couple in Modesta, California, that would be willing to be the surrogates for their baby. And so after months and months and months of worry, months and months and months of concern, they went out to Modesto to pick up their child. What was remarkable in the way that she told the story was that the surrogates and the two, the two people, the surrogates, were each so different from their family. My friend is modern Orthodox from New York, and the surrogates were on one side of Mexican descent and on the father's side, or the man's side, of Palestinian descent. And so my Orthodox friends found themselves in Modesta, California, with a surrogate holding their baby, being born into an Orthodox family in New York, and the surrogate's family is Mexican and Palestinian. (laughs) 
My friend wrote that this child whose name is Ta'ir, which means to awaken, this seed, this seed born from a tomb that became a womb, this seed whose being expresses the beauty of the seed's promise. I will be who I will be. I am here for a reason. From tomb, womb, from despair, hope. From truth buried in the ground to truth awakened from the ground like a seed bursting forth. Born of people from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different languages, different stories, different Sabbaths, maybe different sacred books. We hold these truths to be self-evident. There is a seed, a seed in this country, a seed in our relationships, a seed in this community. There are seeds of truth that are nourished in the soil of faith and love. My friend, in telling over this incredible birth narrative, this birth story, finished the story by saying that as she drove away from the house of the surrogates, baby in tow, the surrogate parents with their two teenagers looking on and the Palestinian father-in-law loving and waving goodbye, a song played on the radio that brought her to tears. It was John Cougar Mellencamp crooning, Ain't that America, home of the free? Ain't that America for you and me? A world where truth is not something to scare us, a world where tombs, where we hide, can become a seed bank of what we might become. It was in that dark basement in Pasadena, California, when I was 23 years old, that I watched men and women sharing their deeply buried truths. And in that container, in that space of love and faith, their very truths became seeds of their power, seeds of who they could be, seeds of a world that we might imagine for ourselves, that kind of world, a world where we gestate each other's truths, where we give hope to one another, where we are that for each other. I want to believe that that's possible. I believe it is. I have faith. And I have faith because the letters emet that we have been chanting for 10 days, if you look at the top of this, the first letter, the middle letter, and the last letter. If you take the last letter and the middle letter together, it spells death, tomb. If you take the first letter and the middle letter together, it spells aim, mother. Mm. 
Truth has both mother and tomb in it. So you see, you don't know if it's a happy ending until you've seen the whole story. We haven't seen the whole story yet in this country. We have not seen the whole story yet in your heart, in my heart. Yom Kippur is a day for us to plant seeds of truth. Yom Kippur is a day for us to be honest, to acknowledge, to admit, to confess, and hopefully by the end to be able to say that we have not sworn in vain. There is an oath that we are, each and every one of us, accountable for and to, which is the truth. Sometimes I lay under the moon. I thank God I'm breathing. And then I pray, don't take me soon. I'm here for a reason. We're here for a reason. We're here for a reason. 